Welcome to The Rest is Education. I'm Ross Borflick, and this week I'm very pleased to say that we've been joined by Julia Martin, who is the CEO of the ISEB. And for those that haven't heard of the ISEB, it's the Independent Schools Examination Board. The ISEB represents uh, over 340 schools internationally. Uh, it's a, a really great honour, actually, to have her on board, and it's something we, we've tried really hard to, to sort of line up. So I'm very pleased that she's, she's found the time to join us. So welcome, Julia. Thanks so much, Ross. And um, I think the pleasure's all ours. We've had um, a long time being able to work together and, and work on qualifications together. So it's great to be able to be here and speak to you. So, Julia, for those that don't know you and, and you're, I mean, you're immensely popular on social media. Your name crops up a great deal on, on LinkedIn and uh, you're often sort of at conferences and, and things uh, speaking. So, you, I mean, you're, you're quite a... Um, quite a notable character people will recognize you but for those that don't what would you say drove you into education in the first place it's not a career for everyone honestly and I've been quite candid about this actually on on LinkedIn particularly recently it it was my own education so um I was born to to two parents that had had state school educations. Um, My father had done really well. Um, He'd been lucky enough to go to grammar school and he was incredibly clever. And um, as a result of him being clever, he was able to build a business and and do a huge amount and and then send me to independent school. So I was the first person and I had the best time. I went to prep school from when I was two years old and I loved school. I am a I am however, you know, I'm a full geek. So that doesn't that doesn't hurt, but I had the most amazing schooling. And although of course I went off to university with great aspirations, I was going to be a journalist, I was going to be a musician, I well, I was going to be everything. Um it didn't take very long actually of working a little bit in finance then a little bit in the music industry to suddenly have it hit me between the eyes that I wanted to wake up every morning and do something I really cared about and even now the thing I care most about is learning I really love to learn and I love watching what happens to people when you see that penny drop and so as a result I I quit my job one day and trained to be a teacher um, literally overnight and I've never looked back So I'm in education because I had a wonderful education and I wanted to give that back. And actually, most recently, it came full circle. And I was at my own school um, and I was up there at a sixth form evening doing sort of mock interviews and support for careers and supporting the upper six, thinking about what they were going to do next. And I walked away feeling the happiest ever and just was so reminded of the opportunities that I'd had so that's why brilliant I mean so much of what you've just said there sort of chimes with with my own background and uh yeah I think uh, it's very it, it, there's a moment isn't there when you you sort of realize actually what's important in life yeah and you know you want to do something meaningful and uh, there is also an element of what you've said, you know, the phrase now is to pay it forward. You know, yeah. you know, I think very, very noble of you. And because uh, I'm very excited by what 
what you've done at the ISCB and uh, can't wait to sort of get into that. I wasn't very aware of the ISCB until becoming a teacher. So I, I didn't go to prep school. And uh, my, my wife, a bit like you, went from sort of the age of three, I think, in the end and, and, and then boarded from seven, <laughs> even though she lived about a mile down the road. But she's absolutely evangelical. And of course, now we, we live and work in a boarding school. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, you know, have sort of fully bought into to the fantastic elements of independent education. But I wasn't aware of the ISCB, as I say, until actually starting as an NQT and uh, teaching common entrance actually at a prep school in West London. And uh, actually, you know, I, I really enjoyed teaching the common entrance, but um, there's actually a lot more to the ISCB than just common entrance, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was back, it was the academic year 1903 to 1904. So you find us right in the middle of our 120th anniversary. And common entrance was something that happens because there are uh, main patron associations or or main membership organisations in independent education. One is called HMC, uh, the Heads Conference. Uh, Another one is IOPS, the Independent Association of Prep Schools. And the other one is GSA, the Girls' Schools Association. And between those associations, they realised that at the time, so many children were applying for a number of different schools. There was a real sort of market of independent education at the time. And the problem was that what it meant was that young people were potentially preparing for five maybe different uh, examination styles at different schools. And they felt, they all got together and said, look, what we really need to do is, is create something that means there's sort of one benchmark. So Common Entrance was founded on some really brilliant principles at The the main one really being the idea of reducing assessment burden for young people at a really critical age, transition at 11 or 13. You know, we're dealing with young people who are in their formative years who are not yet fully realised as as scholars, as learners and as individuals, but they're on their journey. So we have to be really careful. It's a real privilege to do what we do. So I think that fundamental idea was great. So Common Entrance was about having a, a, a benchmark exam at that age, uh, so what we would now know as the end of year eight, um, ready to go into year nine. And that was when senior school would start. And common entrance was conceived of as a way of getting a benchmark, getting a bit of a baseline understanding of where children were in all of their subjects. And actually, if we track forward 120 years later, whilst common entrance could seem to be you know, 120 years old, gosh, you know, There are still things about it that have those core principles at heart and still get some brilliant outcomes. So one of those is that um, actually there is no sort of public or recognisable, you know, go off and marked by other people examination that takes place written in all your subjects ever before GCSE. And what we find is those young people that have gone through common entrance are actually just take GCSE in their stride. Oh, I've done this. You know, I, oh, I did this two years ago. Yeah, I understand. I understand what sort of taking an exam seriously at the end means. So there's some really great stuff in there. But ISCB realised a long while back that actually, you know, written exams in every subject in this age group only for transition isn't necessarily all that assessment should be. And so now we're starting to get to a stage where we're producing far more assessment types for different 
purpose is in school. So ISEB used to be known as an exam board that would be about, but that's the one you do when you move between schools, you know, the horrible ones. Uh, well, now actually we've got things for young people on the whole of their journey, whether that's a bit of formative assessment or projects or digital exams, um, a bit of creative writing. There's lots going on. And that's really with one core aim is that every independent school is different. Um, parents select independent school not because it's a type, but because they find a school or a set of schools whose ethos, way of being and culture they feel is right for their child. So actually, one size fits all. It probably isn't right. And to recognise that, we have to give schools things from which they can choose. But knowing that because we're an example, you've got to be able to trust it. You've got to be able to know that that assessment has been created with integrity. And it's got to have these things off qual would say reliability. You know, if you take it, is it going to give you a result that's benchmarkable against something else? Uh, you know, is it valid? Is it fit for purpose? You know, is it is it actually testing good maths or weirdly is it testing your ability to read a very long form question and find the numbers? So we take that really seriously. And because we like to think that the ISCB are the ones where if you come to, to us and you can get a different exam style, you know that if you email me and say, well, can I, can I see your data and your research? We can pull that out. We're working with lots of universities. So that's that's the big sort of meta journey we've been on in the last three years. And so just quickly going back to common entrance. So for those listening who perhaps aren't, aren't familiar with UK prep schools, the leaving point, the traditional leaving point tends to be at the end of, of what we would call year eight. And so pupils would, would tend to sit an exam in, in the, that summer term and, uh, you know, aged uh, 12 or 13, and they would then go on to senior school. And that obviously is very different to what occurs in the state maintained sector. Mm-hmm. And what, what I really liked about it when I first came across the common entrance is that actually it is an academically quite rigorous, quite challenging syllabus mm-hmm. in, in many subjects. And it's given to pupils who actually in a state-maintained school might be learning at a slightly lower level, but but even if they're learning at a sort of similar or, or higher level, they're not then working towards some sort of valedictory exam point at the end of year eight. Yeah. Uh, and, and so there, there does feel like a real journey. And, and what I loved about it as a, an exit point of school is that actually pupils really mature from the end of what we would call year six yeah and, uh, you know from sort of aged 11 to 13 you see such development yeah and it really sort of lends itself to that growth if you like as, yeah. a, as a curriculum so I, I I found it fascinating I, I taught history for for a decade I taught TPR or you know religious studies to some people um, and yeah, I, I honestly found it very good but um, so in, in terms of um, other uh, qualifications that, that are being uh, sort of offered would you would you like to tell us some more about about the range of, of qualifications that the ISCB provide? Yeah, so probably the the one that came next, really. So we do actually have written exams for 11 plus. So actually, I took those myself when I went to independent school. So I've got, you know, uh, wonderful memories of those (laughs) uh, and studying for those. Um, Really, the next sort of big development for ISCB came about 10 years ago, uh, which was something called the common pretest. Now, 
that's that in in fact even in a sh very short period of time that's changed its nature now very much that is a digital examination for maths english verbal reasoning and non-verbal reasoning that is taken at the beginning of year six or during year six when you are 11 and more so than ever um schools are using it for that purpose for transition at 11. the reason it's got a slightly odd name the common pretest was actually it was first developed as a way of doing something you mentioned earlier, which is that schools realized that, particularly if there was lots of competition for places uh, or many, many applicants, um, that they needed a bit more data, a bit more information on the children. So they were finding that lots of children were doing absolutely brilliantly um, at the end of year eight. They'd been prepared really well. Um, they'd gone to some wonderful prep schools and they'd, they'd really done well in these exams. And actually what senior schools wanted to see was perhaps what journey those children had been on. And you rightly said, between the ages of 11 and 13, learners are so often unrecognisable. The other thing that common entrance becomes quite good at if we're also testing at 11 is actually showing what is quite a common journey, which is that perhaps at 11, we are uh, one person and we've got a particular set of skills and we learn in a particular way, but we can really bloom and blossom. And that actually, if you then do that digital test in those four skills, but you know what, if you're and a great example is a history scholar or you you're, you just thrive in history or, or TPR, theology, philosophy and religion, these new subjects that you come to explore when you either go to senior school and when you hit key stage three or languages, Kids are doing really, really well in those. And so we learn something different about children as well and about their development. So the common pretest really gives a baseline in two things, English and English potential, which is verbal reasoning, and maths and maths potential. And at 11, that gives you a really good picture. And actually what we've learned from lots of our uh, friendly admissions directors, at lots of the big schools who run all sorts of incredible data on this, there's a really good correlation between that performance at GCSE as well. So we know that there's a really good benchmark there, but that's not the whole story. Where are our musicians? Where are our sports people? Where are our scholars? Where are our history or geography buffs, or well, common entrance takes you a bit further on that journey, or indeed other qualifications and tells us more. So from this, we learnt um, that actually more options start to be good. You know, ISCB had traditionally existed around common entrance, and that was a great thing. But the world is changing. Um, and so actually, just as I had come into ISCB, a new thing had been piloted called the IPQ. And this is one you know loads about, uh, which is the Independent Project Qualification. Now, this was developed because we realised that all learners learn differently. Also, we know that assessment doesn't have to mean exam. And Whilst I can sit here and, and be behind exams and give you wonderful sort of academic data-driven responses about the impact of assessments, actually, I can also tell you confidently that um, an examination is not always the best way to measure everything and is not always the best mechanism for every child. And so we need to recognise that. Now, the, the IPQ, it's been recognised. So there's the um, Ohio Project Qualification and the, the EPQ that happens as a really brilliant alternative at A-levels. It's, it's accepted by so many universities. And somebody thought, rightly, 
what if we could start the pathway towards that style of learning? And actually, what if we could make really available to schools some of that academic research that talks about why project qualifications are so brilliant? And what a project qualification recognises, and actually, as soon as I came into ISEB, I recognised that uh, making it available for one age group isn't enough. We need a pathway. So we've instantly gone straight to having a range of different IPQ styles for young people. And what it does is it measures the process of undergoing a piece of research and not the outcome. It also marks your skills, not the subject, which means that you could do a project. Well, schools, every school uses it differently. I haven't found a school that uses it the same. And I love that. But I, we can validate the outcomes. And I won't go too much into that. But but it is possible. It is done. And it uses some incredibly cool technology. But it means that a young person can go, I love music. I'm a musician. And that's really important to me. And actually, I don't have an exam in music at my school. And, you know, my grade six cello is great. But Actually, I'm, I'm really into, I don't know, reggaeton and Taylor Swift, whatever. And um, they can select to do a project in anything they really care about. I, you know, ballet, cricket, sport. The other way in which I've seen, and, and children do better when they're enthused. We all do, actually. So we find these insanely high outcomes from young people. Maybe they're not doing so well in their traditional exams. And that journey, they need till year eight. But my goodness, at year six, can they do some really advanced demonstration of project skills when they're talking about something they love? And it's so exciting. Other schools do it where they recognise that curricula can be um, narrow or they can be subject based and lots of schools now are really they're doing amazing things in sustainability ecology climate change uh, equity diversity and inclusion they are helping kids with political skills debating skills and actually schools sometimes select you know like sustainability um climate change and they want to run a thematic based set of lessons where they can talk about climate change in history, in geography, uh, in English even. And we see some wonderful interdisciplinary research and great projects coming from pupils that find something that fascinates them within that theme and they run with it. And funnily enough, although it's not funny at all, is it? Because if what you find is that children don't mind learning some of those skills that actually are so important now in higher education, this is the kind of stuff they're going to be doing at university. And we're helping them go on that journey now. Um, and so lots of schools use it like that and others use it for their, their extracurricular activities. So they use it as a way of awarding something like drama or a whole school production. Um, one of the schools did um, a radio show. They did their own podcast. It was amazing. Um, and, and we can really see that impact. So uh, you'll have to stop me on IPQ because I'll just go really into it. But but that is next. Um, and from that come other things. Um, sure. Creative writing, understanding the role in creativity in education. What do qualifications look like in creativity? What does creativity mean when it's blended with the academic? We, we're looking at ways in which we can understand the curriculum more thematically. So what if we don't do computer science, we do coding, but we make an artefact? Uh, what if maybe we blend uh, geography uh, and think about that from a climate change and sustainability angle and ad infinitum? Okay. Uh, 
Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. So let's, um, I love the enthusiasm. So go, going back to what you said about the IPQ, it's funny that they just launched at the ISCB when you, when you joined, because actually the school that I joined in my first year, uh, my previous school, they had also just launched the IPQ. And so I, I was fresh to it at that point. And I was asked to, to write a curriculum for sustainability over, it was to be delivered as a two-year course in year six and year seven and I saw the IPQ as being what you've just described so it was such a versatile tool that I could easily sort of incorporate and and we ended up using it in the year seven so in the second year of of this two-year program on sustainability and it was absolutely fantastic because some pupils would engage with it on a sort of primary level and and they might create a project question around you know, how to make their school lunches more sustainable, you know, and it's something they're thinking about on a sort of day-to-day, you know, level. Uh, And then others would be thinking about the the sustainable development goals, you know, the United Nations SDGs. And, um, and, And so you've got then really a really accessible course. It can be molded to, to people's interests, as you say, it can be subject specific. So I, I used it in sustainability. But then also once my scholars had finished later in the summer term, my year eight scholars, I, I gave them the option to, to sit uh, an, an IPQ of their own choice. So I had, mm-hmm. had an art scholar who wanted and she, she desperately wanted to sort of explore this area. Uh, she wanted to look at the history of art. And so she created these amazing sort of A2 size panels that she she covered the school in. And it was a chronology of art all the way from cave drawings right through wow. to sort of postmodernism. And, uh, you know, that, again, falls under the IPQ. And so, I mean, I, I'm a huge advocate of it, uh, as you know. And um, it seems like the, there's just more and more interest in that area. In fact, weirdly, since sort of leaving the prep school world, uh, about a term and a half ago, I've been contacted by three schools, two of which actually are in the Oxford group. So this sort of older, um, more traditional group of prep schools uh, tend to be boarding and 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 wedded uh, traditionally wedded to the idea of common entrance, uh, and and they are very very interested in the IPQ. Um, and you know, huge powerhouse schools as well, like Notting Hill Prep in in West London. 450 pupils in the, in the school, you know, they absolutely love the IPQ. So I think, you know, it's, um, it, it, it can be for traditional schools. It can be for modern schools. It can be subject-based. I, I honestly, I think the versatility of it is, is fantastic. So, um, yeah, thank you for sort of driving that. Um, is there, yeah. is there much of a, an appetite for the IPQ outside of the prep school world? Well, interestingly, there are two ways in which we are seeing its growth. One is internationally, which is really cool, because what that's going to help us do is get and understand more data from performance from children all over the world, because what IPQ is brilliant at, and again, I I won't talk about it now, but understand equity, diversity, inclusion, and SEND, it really recognises and champions children and the way in which they'd like to progress and learn. Like I say, it measures progress, not outcomes. And whilst, yes, we can attribute a grade, actually the real learning comes 
from watching those children develop. Often we can empower children to demonstrate higher level skills when it's in a subject that they are passionate about. And do you know what? Why shouldn't we? Because if you can learn the skill that way, you've suddenly unlocked how to apply that skill to other things. So we are seeing more international schools take this up. The other thing that we are really pleased about, particularly in the current climate, is um, that the IPQ is a brilliant tool for bringing the state and the maintained sector together. And actually what we do is we, particularly if there's collaboration going on, we will offer that IPQ to those state uh, school children for free so that what we are seeing is um, independent schools and state schools learning from each other, but they're being sort of some of the barriers removed. So we are now starting to see school groups in certain areas that are mixtures of independent and state school children come up with the most creative, brilliant projects that are, are about really meaningful, highly current uh, things that are happening. The other thing that we've done, and we did this last year, was we partnered with um, a charity called Classics for All. Now, classics is one of those subjects, isn't it, that, you know, I mean, when you hear Boris Johnson, you know, <laughs> pulling Sisyphus out in his sort of exit speech, there is something about that that can seem really removed from the majority of people's education experience um and yet there still remains something quite mystical about it and there must be a reason that you know why do why do independent schools teach latin and classics well there are great reasons because there are ancient civilizations all over the world and there's a real way of unlocking wonderfully multicultural ideas through it so by partnering with classics for all who are specialists in supporting state schools with um free to access a curricula around classics, classical mythology, Latin and Greek, we offer them a Classics for All IPQ absolutely free of charge to level that playing field. And we're about to also launch one in, funnily enough, a subject that again is often seen as the, the preserve of the independent school world, which is history of art. Because again, actually, I mean, gosh, history of art can, history of art these days can be Warhol, it can be Keith Haring. Why not support that creativity and help children, help unlock parts of our past um, that maybe may not be taught in state schools because of the pressure? So there's a huge push to really democratise things through a qualification that is recognised. Brilliant. Uh, I mean, you know, all, all that cultural capital, I think the more accessible it can be, then then the better. And as you say, you know, in terms of levelling the playing field and um, democratising it, I think that that's fantastic. You may you may not have heard our, I'll forgive you if you haven't listened to our uh, recent episode on classic, why is it taught and whatnot. Yeah. Um, classics for All came up in, in that conversation. Yeah. I think there are several organisations now doing a, a similar thing, but I think, you know, absolutely it's very exciting you know mythology and and the classical world but then also the benefits that it lends to language learning and yeah i i i'd love to see all of that rolled out uh, and history of art again as you say you know uh, why not i think it's a great idea you sort of started to to sort of move forward didn't you and, and talk about what your what you're currently working on. I mean, I, I don't know, is this sort of classified information in terms of um, next steps for the ISCB? I know you've, you've been very busy recently. 
No, we've, we, in fact, we're, we're just about to launch it. So I suspect by the time this podcast hits, it will be everywhere. Um, and that is that we are about to move into exploring uh, the skills and the impact of creative writing, uh, because we know that a number of senior schools are asking for, for all of our excitement about digital, for all of the data that digital can afford, Many schools rightly are saying, but we want to see how they think. And, uh, you know, multiple choice tests can tell us an awful lot. And, and we can, you know, we can bound those limitations. We know what it can tell us. But I really want to know how someone thinks. Actually, I really want to see them right. Because all of us every day in our professional lives have to write. We have to be persuasive. We have to be... Um, correct but also actually part of doing really great business or creating really great products is about being able to engage the creative brain too um and and often digital tests don't show us the best of some of those hidden talents that young people have so we have been working particularly uh with some uh, special technology called comparative judgment. And actually, we're also trialing that in IPQ at the moment, which helps us understand how to assess and how to explore and how to recognize different creative responses. And actually, whilst that can seem very tricky, quite subjective, there's actually some amazing mathematics. I won't get to all of it now, <laughs> but um, there's amazing proven mathematics and models that show that we can make really effective judgments on the creative, actually. Um, and so what we're doing is, is we're exploring what that looks like. How do you um, how do you award a, a photograph versus a written essay? We know that some children uh, prefer one style of creative response over another. So we're looking at creative writing and creative response and what that means. And so one of the ways that schools and indeed anyone can get involved is we're running a creative writing competition. Um, and that will be open from the end of January until about Easter, I believe. Um, and actually for, for those in prep schools and senior schools, um, in the independent sector, you are very likely to get some, some information about that now. We're also running a big conference um, at the end of April, April the 24th, about sort of the future of assessment, what, what that looks like, how do we award the future? And again, the real headline of that is assessment isn't always an exam. Um, technology can help us do a, a huge number of things. It can give us lots of data that we might take weeks to get to. Um, it can support us to automate some of those processes in education that can be very time consuming, freeing us up as either assessors or teachers or both um, to do the thing we're really good at, which is hopefully teaching young people, inspiring them and finding unique ways to tap into their individual brains and um, capabilities. And actually, sometimes we can find ourselves marking uh, designing lessons, uh, doing many things that we've had to do a lot before. And maybe if we let a computer or maybe if we let the assessment do some of that heavy lifting, we could spend more time having rich debates, discussions, skills-based classes with our kids too. So we're really looking into how we can help schools realise their learning goals. 
Brilliant. And I'm so intrigued to, to know a bit more about that. And, you know, I look forward to the conference, certainly. But uh, I remember years ago, sitting in meetings, English department meetings, and you'd have the, you know, the 11 plus papers out and you'd be comparing. Uh, and of course, the comprehension paper, it's fairly straightforward, isn't it? You know, Johnny, Johnny's hat was red, one yeah. up. But then the creative writing paper, there were so many heated discussions between people moderating creative writing papers. And, and you know, yes, there's a mark scheme, but how, how do you interpret that? And, and really, what makes one descriptive writing piece better than another? Uh, so if, there, if there's technology which can can help with that, then then all to the good, really. Um so, yeah, I'm very, very interested to know more there. And in well, fact, to, to really blow your mind, what if you didn't need a mark scheme? Now, I know we all get very, and I get it, um, very excited by mark schemes because there's this sense that there's something that is correct and there's a way of doing things. Now, people often, if you, if you say, well, what if we lost the mark scheme? People can feel a bit at sea. Well, well, what does this mean? What are we putting in charge? And so I suppose the best way I've found of explaining it is what if we weren't letting the technology do the marking? We still do that. So as humans and actually as trained teachers, we know that we have a skill and we know that it's been honed over years. Okay, so we can trust it. But what if what we allowed the technology to do was to find the common characteristics of things we found brilliant across a diverse pool of teachers? And then instead of saying, this is the mark scheme, we were able to show teachers, here are things that have been marked really highly. So yeah. with not one set of skills or one sort of zenith of an idea, there's a range of ways to respond that can raise your game. Yeah. If we then showed that to children and asked them to make their responses, then suddenly what we're doing is we are communicating about what might make something good and selecting the things that we think we might be better at. And interestingly, once you start to do that, you watch the quality of teaching and learning go up. The way we teach might move away from the mark scheme and more towards let's analyse and debate in class about these things that last year everyone thought were really cool. Do you like it? Don't you like it? Well, in those higher order skills is where the real gold in learning can be felt. And actually, rather than, you know, that really quite scary space, I think, which is the technology is doing it and we don't know why, it's we are using the technology to give us insights that can allow us as teachers to have stronger learning time and and still be the ones that have the agency to make that decision. So, um, oh, I could go on about it forever, Ross. Hey, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. So, it's so, so exciting. So we're calling that comparative judgment. And is there is there something like visual that you can show people uh, anywhere we can go to to see more of that, or is it a case of waiting for the conference? It's a uh, wait for the conference. I do have things at the moment. We're really sharing things with schools. That's where we're starting to roll things out and, and for those things to be used. What I would say is if anybody is listening from a, a prep or a senior school, there are a huge number of pilots and things that we are using this year. And we're also going to run some free training for people um, as well. So actually, those of you that are teachers, do drop us an email um, because what we would like to do is bring all of you guys on board too so that we can get this really working brilliantly and it's truly international which is really exciting so you'll be working with colleagues from Africa and um, from the Middle East as well um, and from Hong Kong. 
So um, just on that, we can put your email in in the um, episode notes. So you know, if you're listening, you do do click on that and, and have a look. Um, along with that, though, you've been incredibly generous and you've you've offered quite a substantial discount to listeners. And the code for that is is education. So I'll, I'll put all this information in the notes. But um, the the conference is is titled at the moment "Assessing Change, Awarding the Future," and as uh, we've just heard from Julia, it's actually on Wednesday, the twenty fourth of April, twenty twenty four. It's in London, and uh, it's a one day conference. And as I say, there is a discount code education. But um, I'll, I'll pop all that in the episode notes. So, Julia, you've sort of, I suppose, opened the AI can. Uh, we um, we did have an episode on AI where uh, David spoke to a couple of uh, professionals uh, to give a global perspective on on AI. I know that uh, a lot over the past twelve months or so has has been uh, said about AI, and I don't know whether a great deal has has been done just yet. Uh, I know people are dipping their toe and, and there are lots of references in, in last week's uh, or, or our last episode. Um, however, you know, you've just alluded there that maybe AI is used in, in some of, of your work. Is that the case? Or? Yeah. So um, actually one of our systems, so the Common Pretest uses a system that has AI um sat at its heart now uh, and and likewise we are exploring things like comparative judgment where where ai is used but again one of the things really to stress here is that a computer isn't making the decision um there are ways in which a computer can i.e if a question is either right or it's wrong um as it is in multiple choice questions then a computer can mark that very very quickly but that is an ai that's just a, a standard um standard yes or no where we use AI and where it's very very important and it does have a great impact is to understand the data that we then have and it becomes really powerful when you can use it to compare data so actually over the last few hours and it's it's real genuine live time today I actually got a report from one of our data scientists because all we did yesterday was ask the question hey up to this point in time, if we compare today on the pretests, which are the, the digital maths, English, verbal reasoning, nonverbal reasoning, we compare this year's cohort with last year's cohort. Um, is there anything statistically significant on it? Um, is there anything we need to know? Are there any questions that are being answered in a certain way? And yes, okay, we can, you don't necessarily need AI to do that, but if you want a bit of sort of data that intersects that could tell you if there's a difference why there's a difference or, well, actually, it, for the length of time this took, this question standing out or this is an outlier, you can do that incredibly quickly. So it took a couple of hours from us asking the question for them to run hundreds of thousands of data points and find any correlations, statistical significance. What we can now do with that information is, A, be really reassured. Um, so it's great if you want to quality assure something. But actually, we can now look at that and think about how we give that to schools so that they can help their learners tackle certain things. Now, imagine if we could do that with all of our assessments. So actually, the, the act of capturing that data is really, really important because it allows us to use AI to see if there are patterns, sequences, um, 
interventions that a school could make to change something. And that's something we could we could only do if I sat a number of really expensive people down for weeks with manual spreadsheets at the end of every session, at the end of every year. And by the time we got the data, it would be too late to have an impact for the following year. So for us, that's how we're using it. And like I say, we are using the AI to help us understand the impact of our human decisions as teachers rather than replace them. And I think that's the really important message from us, which is that imagine what we could do if we could free teachers up from the burden of the other things that they rightly need to be doing, but could really focus on the thing that they are wonderful at, which is educating and inspiring young people. Brilliant. Well, um, thank you for that. And uh, I do have a question from David, actually, who is unable to be here this evening, but he uh, was very keen to know about really whether what's going on in, in the ISCB at the moment has has increased our understanding of, of how pupils learn. And mm-hmm. he tried to sort of give the example of co- cognitive load theory, which we've obviously learned a, a lot about over the past few years. Uh, so I, I don't know whether you're feeling Feeling up to answering David's no, question. It's, he's he's right to um, to tackle that. It's something we've taken really seriously, um, and we've actually invested quite a lot in research because it's really important. When so we we redid using completely different technology, um, but the same format uh, to really update, to upgrade the common pretest. So it needed uh, a platform that was going to support schools much more that could do some of these amazing automated things schools were asking for. And so with Century Tech, we we managed to achieve that. Uh, But of course, with that, we had a huge task to ensure that all the questions we were asking were really reliable. I mean, we had to run an enormous number of research projects and all of that data had to go through uh, some insane algorithms and and theories and and I'm glad we did. And what we learned was that we had the option to run um, a range of tests, one of which was around cognitive load, i.e. we noticed that there were a number of questions previously, not now, uh, previously where we were testing maths, but some of the load was taken up on wording uh, or on wording that perhaps was a little sort of clunky, uh, not clear, um, on having to do a number of different things. So you were having to find a bit of information on a grid, read something, then do the maths. And if what we are saying is these are the skills we're testing, it's a cool question, but the answer isn't arrived at based on math skill. It's um, an interdisciplinary skill. And we had to put those to one side because that in that instance wasn't what we're testing. So we were very rigorous. We managed to really side through a huge number of things by looking at cognitive load. The second way, which I know you didn't ask and I'm sorry, but nevertheless, the second way, once you start to take that approach, we said to ourselves, we don't know the answer and we hope it isn't the case. It's only gender bias in this. Mm. So we had a look at the way in which girls and boys answered certain questions. And there are the obvious ones, like if you ask questions about ponies or about cricket, there can be a bit of a skew. But there were actually some question styles that we found were answered better by some genders than by others. And of course, you don't want that. 
Wow. Okay. Um, it's amazing what you can find out. So we then did a cut on that, and then we again did that on on cultural backgrounds, and of course, of course, we do it on age age standardization. So month by month, uh, so really, really rigorous without knowing and understanding some of that research on cognitive load, we wouldn't have been able to get to that point. And then again, once you start getting that data, you can start to do some really cool things because could you design a problem solving test that's very explicit that says it's about testing this skill with this skill with this skill? And then what does that look like? But what we need to be clear is that we're not accidentally being overly complex with young people and that if we're saying this is an English test or a maths test it absolutely is purely doing exactly what it says and you can confidently uh, be sure of that so David's absolutely right and it's really important um, we're running the same research studies um, through at the moment on common entrance as well which should tell us a little bit about its direction for the future and also perhaps what curricula look like for the future Brilliant. Well, it's so so interesting what you're saying about because you know the gender, but but also the sort of cultural bias. And I'm thinking back to you know very old eleven plus papers where you know there might have been a question saying you know Josie's governess asks her to yeah. you know add yeah. this to, to that, and actually you've got someone there from an entirely different culture and and time really mm-hmm. thinking what on earth is a governess. And, and 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 the question isn't about that. The question's actually asking about you know the the facts of the the question, but they're thrown by the the language. So I think that um, that cultural capital and and people's sort of uh, I suppose their their background before sitting that exam, if you can level the playing field, then then all for the better. And actually that that then leads me on quite nicely to the next question, which is you know your work at the ICB. Do you think ultimately it's it's helping assessment become fairer or more equitable, do you think? I think what we're trying to do, so we take our responsibility pretty seriously because it's a huge privilege to be able to devise of and pilot ideas that are for, for young people to, to help with their education and it's one of the things we're really keen actually to never, ever forget is that we're very, very lucky and we need to do this properly. So as a result, neurodiversity, well-being, SEND and ensuring that we're doing the right research on that is really, really important to us particularly. So I think there are a number of ways we can make sure we're being more fair is we can ensure that we are allowing a whole range of the most diverse young people to to engage with something that will enable them to succeed. And the most important way we can do that is by ensuring that the schools have it. And then the second thing is doing things like this is saying, hey, look, we are really happy to provide a raft of free resources and be really open about the ways in which you can use this. Um, Because actually that, you know, schools that may not five years ago have thought that project learning was was worth anything and that, well, you know, the exam is the thing. And, And in so many ways, an exam does test an awful lot of great stuff. But you know, it's not the only answer. It really isn't. It's part of a raft of a range of tools that we use so that we can arrive at a unique picture of a person 
and understand that even if we're not brilliant at an exam, we might be killer at delivering a presentation. Well, in my job, I haven't had to do that many exams since I graduated. Um, and those that I have done, you know, professional exams are often online. So, so but God, if I couldn't present, that would be a real problem. I, I might need to learn brevity, Ross. But, um, <laughs> but um, that really would be an issue. Well, uh, at this point, is that's you know, a child that's shining in that. My goodness, they they have just as much right to be progressing as a child um, who who serves wonderfully on exams, and their skills are are great. We all develop skills at different times. I think we're all in that pot, aren't we? You know, maybe I'm better at, better at physics now than I was at GCSE, which is really annoying. <laughs> you know, we all get there, <laughs> so, so we need to help with that. Good. Well, I'm yeah, very pleased to hear that. And and obviously, there's a lot going on in in education nationally. And uh, you know, I'm up in a senior school, an in, in independent senior school in Scotland at the moment, which I think traditionally was wedded to A levels. And actually, two years ago, launched a BTEC. And you know that that is a space which it's it's being seen as sort of A level plus. So you mm. do your A levels, and then rather than doing a BTEC instead you you can do a levels and a btech and and uh, actually there's no reason why you can't be studying classics a level and want to learn a btech in agriculture for instance um and and sort of i suppose there is there's a much more open minded approach really from from universities and and i guess the ucas points help with that and and the sort of leveling of the playing field um, so you mentioned the EPQ. I suppose that's that's far more popular. We have it here as well. And again, this idea that project learning is important. And of course, what do we do in the workplace? You know, it's, it's that, and, and you're you're replicating that with your IPQ. So um, that that's all. You know, it's all sensible, isn't it? Um, now, what, what do you what do you make of schools moving away from GCSE? So some independent seniors, as you say, are in a, a fortunate position. And they can pioneer perhaps new assessments. And some with a, an 18 leaving point are more concerned with A-levels, say, and less concerned with GCSEs. And they've decided actually to shelve GCSEs and, and replace them with an internal assessment. Do you, I mean, what's your take on that? And, and, and I suppose the, the reason I'm asking it really is, do you, do you see that as a potential growth market for the ISCB? So this is really interesting because I ended up in the middle of, and it was really good, in the middle of a debate of two different sides of that very particular argument in the Westminster Education Forum the other day. And we had a brilliant um, teacher from Bedales, and we know that they those guys are great. Um, and she ended up having to, let her say, we are not the only ones. And she absolutely isn't the only one, but they really have done it really well they're real real pioneers in that space um and then um a former head really respected um academic who said you know this way madness lies and actually if you're trying to to benchmark that and mark it in a way that's similar to GCSE anyway with the same AO's assessment objectives then what are you doing um and it was really interesting because they were both such brilliant, passionate speakers. They both had wonderful evidence to back up their side of the argument. I still kept, this is not a cop out, by the way, but I still came away not 
being entirely sure. And so there is the side of me that says, if we are in independent schools and in education, looking at that real exit benchmark that absolutely needs to be a public exam to level that playing field, and that is now A-level, then is it okay, as it is for us at Key Stage 3 now, to be able to, to do things that recognise and innovate in assessment and change. And I think that really was part of Bedell's argument is that they're saying we are doing things in a way that allows our pupils to still progress in exactly the same way as their peers across independent and state education. But what we are able to learn from that is the way in which young people respond and can act when they are presented with assessment styles or qualification styles that suit them better. And I think that's really, really, really important work. And I do think that as an exam board, we need to be investing in and understanding that space 100%. I, I suppose yeah. you're at the, um, the beck and call of market forces. And and like many independent schools, you know, there is an element of, of the tail wagging the dog. And I, and I imagine that you know, if say the parent body at, at a particular school w- was very pro GCSEs, it would be very difficult for a school to pioneer something else. And and so if there's if there's a will for for an alternative, then then perhaps the ICB will, will sort of enter that breach. And um, we've sort of touched upon it a little bit, but um, it seems to me that in the past decade, there's there's been more pioneering, more evolution of assessment. At, uh, at the ICB and, and actually outside uh, as well, if you think about what's going on, you know, in, in Scotland, you had um, the the SMP introduce the uh, the um, curriculum for excellence just over a decade ago. Uh, that obviously shook up education uh, north of the border significantly. And uh, the effects are still obviously being being felt. And the, you know, the variety of, of different vocational qualifications, the T levels, which are mm-hmm. very recent. So the, there's a there's a lot of, of different qualifications which didn't really exist 10 years ago, uh, not least in the ISEB. You've just listed a whole uh, raft of different assessments which exist that you know previously it would have just been common entrance say yeah. and and you know what 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 does the future of assessment hold do you think if things are accelerating at this rate i think that i mean it's you hit the nail on the head there which is which is the other side of the previous argument that i do agree with which is where i have watched schools dial back from their own qualifications it is because parents have not necessarily seen that value and schools also hadn't necessarily seen the outcomes that they'd hoped for so that said I think there's recognition is a huge part of this is that we can all you know we can sit here and have amazing ideas and they can be underpinned with lots and lots of research but fundamentally if if assessment the purpose of assessment isn't considered, then we can lose ourselves. So the point is that very often what makes assessment meaningful is that it helps us do something next. So A-levels do that. And at the moment, to a certain extent, to a majority extent, GCSEs help us do that. 
common engines exist because it helps us do that. And so that's why transition assessments, things that happen to give us a portfolio of, of things to show the next person that we are, we can do the next thing. They're, they're really important. And I don't ever think that assessment will lose that imperative. I do think we're realising that if assessment doesn't have to mean exam and it doesn't have to mean endpoints and that we can gather data from it that can help us do better, tweak better, understand our strengths and weaknesses. And that's kind of always what assessment's been aimed at. But, you know, if, if you always do it as an exam, that's always going to be scary and maybe the cool benefits are lost. But formative assessment in a way that is giving data quicker that is meaningful to teachers and children or young people, I think that's really powerful. You know, it's it's why homework is sat, except we lose the fact that, you know, homework seems to be a chore, but really that's formative assessment. It's helping the teacher understand if they, if they can move on or, or where a child is and how many of us as parents, for those that are parents as well and uh, that are listening, you, know, you go to parents' evening and what happens? The teacher brings up their thing and they're looking at the last assessment or piece of homework your child did and able, they're able to give you something tangible to hook onto and... I think formative assessment is really important, but I don't think assessment for its own sake is or just finding the next brilliant assessment design. It's got to be grounded in research. And I think the power is in the information and the data that we can gather, because if we can use that to help us target, uh, to help us personalise, um, and also to help us understand what really is valued by the next step. Why are we doing the thing? That's when it gets really good. But I'm also aware that that's an answer that doesn't say the future of assessment is X. And we're kind of all looking for that panacea, aren't we? Um, I think it's formative. I'm really happy to put put a stake in the ground there. Yeah. Um, I think it's data-driven, but I think it's about using human agency to intervene then. I don't think it's necessarily about the computer doing it. Um, but I do genuinely believe that AI and data analysis can help us discover things that may have been hidden or bring to the fore patterns and understanding um, in a way that can help us move forward. Okay, good. Well, thank you. Very, very clear answer. I was, oh, I was sort of... Oh my God, I was thinking, oh, am I waffling? Am I answering this? No, not, not at all. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, was, I was sort of hoping you were going to say something uh, like oracy or, you know, and, and sort of moving into that, um, what makes us human space. But um, you know I, I, I honestly don't know how you would even begin to go about assessing that. But, but then again, you seem to have found a way with creative writing. So I yeah. have to say, actually, um, oracy, creative writing, um, IPQ, I think I never explained that one properly because fundamentally it has oracy at its end point, which is the ability to present and then reflect um, verbally uh, in, an, in a number of different ways to respond to, to other people commenting as well. So that actually has oracy at its heart. And I do think that's immensely important. It's embedded in a qualification we have. I do think um, the ability to understand and assess the creative, it's really easy for us to assume that the creative can mean a, an art form and um, thinking can be creative. So I think it's 
it's probably about finding better words. <laughs> um, but I think that ability to take something and change it, explain why, and for it to have an impact, I don't know what you call that. So uh, that was always my favorite part of the IPQ assessment, by the way, um, the Viva at the end where they stand up and defend their project. Yeah. And it, it was something, it was only worth something like four marks, but I, I loved it so much. And and actually the pupils enjoyed sort of fielding questions and it was a real celebratory moment in, in the process. And I think that, you know, th- that could be a space to to maybe develop and, you know, you're the expert, but I, I, I just love all that stuff and I think you know we we certainly don't do enough of it and and I I think that is exaggerated in in state maintained schools I think you know the idea of of standing up and presenting shouldn't be terrifying and and is lots of adults uh and and I think you know that that is a, a failure of our education system uh you know if we're being blunt about it so that that should be a real space for for everyone to be exploring in, well, in opinion. the only place in formal education one has a viva is either when you do the highest level music diploma mm. and or a phd and yet defending your work my goodness is every meeting you ever walk into in the workplace yeah um, championing your work saying finding the evidence to prove it it's it's everything that we do I couldn't agree with you more Ross we've given it more marks recently as well you'll be pleased to know (laughs) very good well um I've I've got to thank you for your time and uh this this has been a great discussion and uh, you know I'm very very excited by the conference and um just quickly before we sort of round off you you mentioned a competition which sounds great you said going to run from the end of january to, to around easter time did did you want to say something about that I, I know we can put it in the notes but just to get people excited and no it's called time to write it's oh it's nice and easy it's www dot which i believe we don't even need anymore but it's write dot dot co dot uk so that's brilliant right dot iscb.co.uk um it's called time to write um i can give you a little bit of a, a trailer on that because it's our 120th year uh the stimulus there's lots of age groups so we want as many uh, to engage with us as possible across a whole range of schools but it is that you find a time machine that time machine gives you two options you can it's stuck so you can either go back 120 years or you can press the button that sends you forward 120 years, but you just can't change the number of years in the middle. And it is to write what it is that you find when you get there. That sounds so good. I might, I might stick an entry in. And, Do you know what, Russ? Uh, I would take there. it. I, there's, there's the ex-English teacher part of me that says, let's open it to teachers because I think we just get the coolest ever things from the full age group. So do you know what? Just before I let you go, this is uh, just something I'm, I'm going to start uh, asking everyone, so don't take it personally. What are you reading at the moment? Oh, I can tell you, but it's really boring and it's not my normal thing. That's totally fine. Okay, there are two things. One is the first chapter of Rebecca, which I've read a hundred times as an English teacher for my daughter because she's doing it and I need her to understand why it's a great piece of literature and understanding the feminine in the Gothic. So I'm doing that because I'm a a geek. The second thing is quite boring, um, but I think 
handy, which is the Tim Spector book. I think it's called Food for Food for Life. <laughs> Lovely. Very good. Uh, but it's very science-based in what he says, which means that it's just about understanding uh, the impact of better nutrition on the way we live our lives. And of course, I'm going to use that to make my children's lives worse. <laughs> Bye-bye, Snickers. <laughs> Bye-bye, Magnums. <laughs> I think that's that's a lovely lovely point to end on, <laughs> Julia. It's it's been a pleasure. Honestly, I've I've really enjoyed this episode, and I've I've learned so much. Uh, so thank you very much, and and I'm sure everyone else will will sort of join me on that. Um, David will be absolutely gutted that he couldn't quiz you on the time to write competition, but um, we'll definitely be entering. So well, thank, you. thank you, and he's very welcome. You know, whenever you guys want to talk about creativity and when we can share our research we're really happy to do so part of being a good example is being really open and not being scared uh, to take on the hard questions so always welcome brilliant well thank you very much and we'll definitely be at your conference so you've you're very welcome you've been listening to the rest is education i'm ross borthwick i'm julia martin you can find us on Instagram, LinkedIn. You can email us at therestiseducation at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Thank you.